You're listening to the Husker Online Show, your authority on Nebraska athletics. Why did this make sense for you? Why was this? The, because you had some other places you could have gone. Why was Nebraska make, made sense for you? Really two things. Black shirt defense, man, and Coach Riley. So you can't find, you can't find a person in our profession that has anything disparaging to say about Coach Riley find a person in our profession that doesn't rave about coach riley and then if 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 you if you love college football and you love and and you live in the continental united states then you know nebraska football and if you're a defensive coach or player you know the black shirt defense well here we go the bob diaco era officially starts as nebraska's new defensive coordinator that was courtesy of the husker sports network play-by-play voice Greg Sharp entering, interviewing Bob Diaco in his first ever uh, interview that he's given since being hired as Nebraska's new uh, defensive coordinator, Sean Callahan, Robin Washett, Nate Klaus. And we should or we are expected to hear more from Diaco possibly by Friday afternoon uh, when Riley and Diaco get off the road. So there are a lot of questions, questions that really weren't addressed in that interview on the Husker Sports Network. That was kind of just a brief introductory deal, but. Uh, you got a feel for Diaco, what he's about. He's an intense New Jersey East Coast guy that's that played at Iowa in the Big Ten, and um, you can sense kind of that passion in his voice. And um, Robin, there's going to be a lot of eyes on Bob Diaco from here on out, and kind of how this change and this transition goes through. Well, this is a big deal in a lot of different ways. I mean, for one, you're talking about Mike Riley severing a relationship that dates back 20 years in coaching with Mark Banker. Um, and that kind of shows the urgency uh, within this entire program to make moves uh, to get this you know, team in the right direction. And then you know, the salary in itself. He's far and away the highest paid assistant coach in program history. Um, so that kind of is another kind of new, new uh, territory Nebraska's kind, kind of, of a layer of pressure, you know, yeah, just to, yeah. to, to produce results. And then you're talking about in all this urgency, you're going to completely revamp a defensive scheme, you know, going from a 4-3 to a 3-4, which is what most people expect. Um, there's going to be a transition involved with that. And so, um, you know, this is a, a, a very um, interesting and exciting and um, kind of, uh, uh, I guess, a lot of different layers to this whole situation that uh, I think is uh, going to be fun to follow over the next few months and uh, as if spring ball wasn't going to be anticipated enough with the quarterback situation uh, you add in this whole deal uh, I have a feeling that spring game is going to be a hot ticket yeah the buzz on this hire is not going to go away anytime soon when when you look at all the different layers that uh, that are in play here from having a guy with a with a terrific reputation as a defensive coordinator a big time coach uh, that Nebraska went out and, and got and opened the checkbook to to land uh, to switch and you know the schemes. You know, um, what was it? Nineteen ninety three. The last time Nebraska. Well, ninety three was the first year they ran the four three. Before that, they basically ran a three four. It was, they called it the five two, mm-hmm. but the concept's very similar to what they did back then. Uh, but yeah, this is a massive change in the history books of Nebraska football. Yeah. So I mean, you're there's so many different layers and different variables in play now, and um, you know, and how does how does Mike Diaco kind of uh, transition his current coaching staff on the defensive side of the ball into this new system. How does he? How do the players acclimate and, and fit into this scheme? Um, how does? How's he going to recruit? You know, that's a question everyone wants to wants to know. I mean, there's so many things that, that people are going to be paying attention to. This is going to be a topic of discussion for a very long time. You're listening to the Husker Online Show, Sean Callahan, Robin Washington, Nate Klaus, as we discussed the early impact here of the Bob Diaco hire. 
at Nebraska, and there's still going to be one more defensive coach hired. It's presumed that it will be uh, somebody in the secondary, probably a safeties coach, as Dante Williams um, is a corners coach. Um, so that is a hire that most assume that Bob Diaco is going to make the decision on that. But uh, just the way things have shaken out, guys, over this last week, um, there's been a lot of questions of what role is Billy Devaney playing in some of these moves that have happened at Nebraska. He's a former NFL general manager. Uh, we've kind of touched on he was kind of brought in to be the counterbalance of Mike Riley, to kind of be the bad cop, the guy that can maybe make the tough decisions, especially when you have a friend or two on the staff that it's hard to make those tough decisions on. And uh, I think the way things have played out, maybe just how fast this Diaco thing moved, a lot of people said, what is Devaney's role in this? Is, is he really Robin? Um, you know, putting his fingers on this and, 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 and kind of pushing the buttons on a lot of this behind the scenes. I don't think you can overstate how important Billy Devaney was in this whole process. And uh, you, you touched on it. It's, it's the ability to give Mike Riley someone that is completely disconnected from the friendships and relationships that he has with you know, his coaching staff, uh, to look at things from a strictly football perspective and what moves need to be made to make this program better. And that's what this decision came down to. I mean, he, he had no, um, you know, really, really care at all, you know, how good of friends, you know, Mark Baker and Mike Riley were, how their you know, families got together for dinner on Sundays. You know, it, it, was, it was not anything to do with that. This was, you know, this is a move. Business. That we, yeah, this is a strictly business professional decision that we need to make in order to compete for championships and uh, they went and got a guy that uh, has a tr proven track record a championship level defense and uh, you know I think you know just from a, an X's and O's and business decision it was the right move well Billy Devaney is an evaluator uh, both of talent on the field and, and I think in, in coaching talent as well and and you always saw Billy Devaney kind of off you know paying attention to everything never really completely in the mix but always dialed in and, and watching every little bit of practice or of, of anything that was going on and I think he just spent basically the past year soaking up everything and then at now, now that the season was over kind of uh, laid it all out, the, out on the line with Mike Riley and said okay these are the strengths and weaknesses that I see in terms of your personnel on the field in terms of your your coaching personnel and um, and probably had some recommendations and and I think that Mike Riley obviously tried Russ, uh, Bob, De or uh, yeah, Billy Devaney, Bob Devaney. Uh, <laughs> I think he, he obviously trusts Devaney, um, and sometimes you need you need that guy who you trust, but isn't a friend that's going to tell you what you want to hear to to make these moves. And and I think that's that's what we saw here. And it'll be interesting when when Riley does talk here at the end of the week. Will he downplay that? I mean, I feel like they're not going to like make it. They're not going to overplay the role the Manny play. I mean, it's almost like they want him to be the man behind the curtain, yeah. the, the Wizard of Oz. Like, you know, who is the man behind the curtain? It's Billy Devane. I mean, they don't want to really expose too much of what he does. But if he is heavily involved in a lot of this stuff, I think it's only fair that he does start addressing some of these questions as well. Um, because if you are making a lot of these decisions, I do think you should be held accountable. This is some questions, kind of what your thoughts are on some of the decisions that have been made. Well, my, my deal is I don't know if if Devaney's the one who's made the decisions. I, I, I see him as like a facilitator, a guy who's, who's laying it out there and say, 
these are some options that I think that you could make, or these are some moves that I think you could make to to help your football team, to help your coaching staff. And and people have talked about, you know, Mike Riley's never done this before. He's never made changes like this before. Well, at Oregon State, did he have the resources to do that? Did he have, um, you know, the the available money to actually fire somebody and bring somebody better in, uh, you know, when he was at Corvallis? I, I don't know. And so now that he has the resources, now that he knows that, uh, this is probably, you know, one of his last go-arounds at, at a major place like Nebraska, and he's going to do it right. Um, so I, I, I'm not willing to say that, that Devaney's the one who's, you know, pushing all the buttons here, but I think he's the facilitator. All right, well, when we come back, we're, we're going to discuss more just this transition and, and what it means. I mean, we touched on Nebraska's been running the 4-3 defense since 1993. That was a program-changing move when the Huskers went from the 5-2 to the 4-3. Will this move to the 3-4 with Bob Diaco be a program-changing move now going forward as they transition into a completely new system and they're only going to have you know a month and a month and a half of spring ball to really set the foundation? We'll discuss all of that next here. You're listening to the Husker Online Show. You're listening to the Husker Online Show, your authority on Nebraska athletics. If you can't, as a player, gain the, the, the resume to win your individual matchup, you know, you're just not paying attention. Um, and as a coach, uh, to, to acquire the talent and the guys necessary to do the work um, and play in the games, and then to be able to, to teach and grow these young men um, into men, there's, there's, not, there's not a thing that's missing here. I mean, from my perspective. And that was newly named Nebraska defensive coordinator Bob Diaco, courtesy of the Husker Sports Network. In his first interview he's given uh, since being hired, he gave a short interview with play-by-play voice Greg Sharp on Wednesday night, just kind of why he came here and, and how the facilities uh, at Nebraska kind of stack up to, to maybe some of the places he's been at. And um, now going forward, guys, as Robin Washett and Nate Klaus join us here, this segment of the Husker Online Show brought to you by Tanner Sports Bar and Grill, five locations in Omaha, two in Lincoln. I just actually checked out the new location on 70th and A, um, a great spot to watch games and uh, lots of football on here on Sunday with uh, the two uh, conference championship games. So get into Tanner's and, and catch some of the action here this weekend. But, uh, Robin, uh, the transition now going forward is, you know, the 3-4 defense, Nebraska – is going to go into this move, but you look at the roster and what they have, a lot of these guys for Nebraska fit the 3-4 pretty well. And, you know, it was getting to the point with the 4-3, you're like, well, who are the Russians? Who are the guys that can really get to quarterbacks? Is it really a liability at times to run this 4-3 when you don't have true NFL-type edge rushers? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why this change was made, and, and Nebraska now will be uh, a 3-4 from here on out. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense um, for a lot of different positions, particularly the depth they have at linebacker. they got a lot of young talent that – uh, probably otherwise would struggle to see the field just from sheer number standpoint. But now um, you're given a lot of opportunities uh, for some different roles to get some athletes on the field, which I think is a very good thing, um, you know, especially to create more pressure, uh, which has been an issue the past two seasons. Uh, up front, you know, I, I think it's, you know, obviously plays well. I think, you know, both the Davis twins, maybe even Mick Stoltenberg could really thrive as one of those three, four ends. But my question is, 
who's going to be your nose guard? I mean, that's like the most critical piece in a 3-4 scheme is that space eater, that big Vince Wilfork, you know, 300-plus pound dude that's going to take on two or three blocks and open up things for those linebackers. It has to be Stoltenberg right now. I mean, I, right now, I mean, he's the most logical guy. And so, I mean, is he is he capable of being that guy? Or, I mean, does a guy like Peyton Newell or no. you know, one of the Davis twins? I mean, who, who's on the roster right now? I mean, outside of Mick Stoltenberg, I don't know who – could fill that role and so maybe you know Nate can touch more on this um, as we go but like uh, from a recruiting standpoint I think that's got to become a top priority is to get a true nose guard in there that's going to kind of be the centerpiece of that scheme yeah I I feel like Nick Stoltenberg is probably to me at least I I feel like he's more of an end type body than than I I do too your typical nose I I feel like the nose is going to be Carlos Davis because he can Um, play low well he can play low he's explosive he's very athletic I mean he was the lifter of the year so we're not talking about even though he's not a 330 pound prototypical nose in the 3-4 we're not talking about a kid who who's not strong and and can't hold his own at the point of attack or, or you know take on multiple guys up front so I feel like he's probably more suited to to be the nose and then you you've got guys like Deshaun Neal and Mick Stoltenberg as as your ends well freedom too and well and, and freedom too yeah because yeah, I've been asked this Nate and agree or disagree people said oh would freedom be an outside guy no. uh, and I'm like no he's 280 pounds like you're not going to put him out there like TJ Watt um, or Vince Beagle because freedom's not that kind of guy no, I, I think uh, an Alex Davis or Cedric King are are more likely to be a stand up guy outside than, than Colin, freedom. Colin, Colin, Miller. Colin Miller. Well, Colin Miller, I, I think, is going to be uh, really good in that role, or could be really good in that role. But as far I'm talking, as far as current defensive ends all of a sudden playing in a two-point stance instead of having their hand in the dirt I, I think that a guy like uh, Alex Davis um, you know could be you know could be one of those guys more so than uh, than freedom freedom will I think will stay on the line let's go I'm gonna go through the the names here on the depth chart real fast and I, I want your guys's just give me a quick answer on each one um, where they fit in the 3-4. Colin Miller, so we, we think on him outside linebacker, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Yes. Ben Stilley, probably um, down lineman in the 3-4. D- defensive end. Yeah, I, I, could, I would lean more that direction. Yeah, I mean... What was he? He was listed at 6'5", 240 last year. You can add some. Oh, he's more than 240, isn't he? Well, that, that was just what he's listed on the roster. So he's probably gained weight since then. So give a full year to add pack on the pounds. I think he could be. Yeah, he's definitely an end. Al- Alex Davis, outside linebacker. Yes. Yep. Deshaun Neal, down lineman. Yes. Down lineman. Freedom, down lineman. Yes. Yes. Cedric King, this one, I don't think he's an outside linebacker, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't either. He's an end. Yeah, I don't think he's fast enough. I don't know. I don't know. This is to me. He's one of those wild card guys. He could either he's going to find new life in a different role this spring, or he's going to be one of those guys that just never really panned out for Nebraska. I know he saw more time on the field than he ever has before this past season, but I feel like this move is is kind of a, or this spring is kind of a sink you know swimmer sink deal for him in in, in this new move with this new scheme. Okay, uh, A.J. Natter, down lineman, and he could be one of those guys that maybe um, has kind of a reinvented season in this defense. You never know. Yeah. Uh, Moving on, defensive tackle, as we kind of discussed personnel in this defense. So do we think both the Davises, uh, Carlos and Khalil, Nate, you've seen these guys more than any of us when you go back to their early days. I mean, do you think – their noses for sure, or do you think they're guys that play um, on that defensive end spot? 
I think Carlos is for sure a nose, and I think Khalil is a guy who could do either. He could be a nose or could be, you know, a, a five tech or, or you know, a, the, the defensive end in the three in the three four. I really like Khalil as a as an outside guy, as an end, uh, just because I think he has the skill set and the pass rush ability uh, to to forgive uh, a little bit more uh, maybe than some other guys on there. So I think his versatility, like Nate said, uh, makes him a pretty intriguing piece there. True or false, Nate? Damian Daniels, if he does come to nebraska he will play as a true freshman true very true i think yeah i think i mean when you look at this scheme i think you're absolutely right he would be he would be a home run get in this recruiting class in terms of landing a, a true nose in a three four no doubt okay let's continue the, the rundown here uh mick stoltenberg we've already discussed probably a dn but maybe a nose uh peyton newell Nose. nose. Definitely a nose. Yeah, definitely a nose. Okay. Um, and now we're on the linebackers. And this is where it gets interesting. Quayshawn Alexander will really fit nicely as a as an outside linebacker in this scheme. Yeah, he, he was an outside guy. I mean, he played defensive end in high school. Um, he played a lot more defensive end as a pass rusher in high school than he did as a linebacker. So I think, yeah, I think this is a move that will benefit him. Pernell Jefferson, outside or inside? Uh, I'm going to go... Well, I think he could do. I think he could do either, um, but maybe more of a, maybe more of that that strong side outside linebacker. All right, Greg Simmons is he an inside guy? I think he's an inside guy. Yeah, yes. I, I would say inside because he was recruited as a Mike, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, we're continuing here. Mohammed Barry outside. outside. He's yep. he's not going to get big enough ever to be on the inside. Tyron Ferguson. He was like a defensive end in high school, Nate. Yeah. So you wonder, I mean, would he be a better outside guy or an inside guy in this game? I think he's a lot like Quayshon Alexander, and like a true pass rushing outside guy. I'll tell you, the one guy, as we get to this next name, that I really don't have an idea how he's going to fit in this scheme as well is Luke Gifford. Um, I mean, you would assume he's an outside guy, but I don't look at him as like a pass rushing type linebacker. So he's an interesting one that's going to be – uh, I'll be curious how they fit him in the scheme. Yeah, I mean, I think the, with the weight that he's put on, he could play inside. Obviously, we've only seen him uh, as an outside in the previous scheme, but I don't think he's incapable of moving inside. I mean, he's probably one of the more, um, I guess, uh, well-versed linebackers just because of his experience. I mean, you know, with just the, the amount of football he's played. So, um, I mean, you got to have kind of your, your more mentally apt guys to play inside just because they're kind of quarterback in that defense. So you're starting two inside guys today would probably be Dedrick Young and Chris Weber. Any other yeah. options there in your opinions? Yeah. Well, I think – I think a guy like Avery Roberts, who's on campus right now, is going to factor into the mix. As an inside guy. As an inside guy. Uh, I mean, he's athletic enough. I think he could do do just about anything, to be perfectly honest with you. But I think he'll start out as an inside guy this this coming spring. He's I know he's in this recruiting class, but he's already on campus. He's already you know going through some winter conditioning. So I would look to him as as a guy that would start out inside and then you know possibly move outside if they need him to. And then lastly, Marcus Newby, outside guy, and I think he's somebody that could really thrive in this role uh, because he is. I mean, at one time this kid played defensive end for for Bo Pelini and pass rushing specials. Yeah, clearly, clearly he's a good enough pass rusher. I um, mean that people you know. Pre, both schemes have tried to go out of their way to, to utilize him, and I think maybe just the, the, the change in scheme uh, will, will help, like you said, and kind of maybe bring out his talents a little bit better. And as we wrap it up, lastly, I'll be really curious kind of what Trent Bray's role will be in this system. You know, because Diaco is a linebacker guy, and Bray is going to be kind of underneath him now and in that role. 
um, working with him. So it'll be interesting how <clears throat> Bray transitions in and what his real role will be um, when you have a, a, a D coordinator that is such a strong voice with linebackers. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be really interesting. But at the same time, I mean, every defensive coordinator in college football once upon a time was a position coach. So I don't, I'm not ready to – I mean, I don't think – I'm not ready to say that Diaco is going to, you know, take over and, you know, meddle with the the linebackers completely and not be more of a big picture guy. So, but yeah, that, I mean, it, uh, Bray definitely has, um, you know, his work cut out for him, you know, coaching, uh, you know, in a completely new system and, and having uh, so many linebackers that are going to ha- be out on the field at once. All right. When we come back on the show, we're going to shift uh, over to basketball discussion. Nebraska ball lost a heartbreaker Wednesday night at the last seconds. Uh, to Ohio State. We'll get Robin Washett's thoughts on that as Nebraska must rebound now and go out to Rutgers here this weekend. That's next here. You're listening to the Husker Online Show. This is Husker Online, your authority on Nebraska athletics. From 358 to 207, we go over two at the line, then we come down and get a three, and then we go uh, miss a layup, and we come back and miss two free throws. And at the same time, we only hold them to, in those two plus minutes, they only score one time, I think. I mean, we should have a three, four, five point lead by the time we took the lead. Uh, a lot of young mistakes, you know, guys, freshmen, sophomores that were making them, but, but you know, I guess uh, you learn by putting your hand on the burner, and that's what we did tonight, we got burned. And welcome back here to the Husker Online Show. That was Nebraska basketball head coach Tim Miles after Wednesday's 67-66 to heartbreaking loss to Ohio State. Uh, Nebraska with a great opportunity to move to 4-2 and in the Big Ten before going to Rutgers here on Saturday where they could easily be at 5-2 and um, with that win. But um, simple inbounds play. Uh, Ohio State scores at the last second. Nebraska had .6 seconds to try desperation. He even uh, comes up short. But nonetheless, Robin, um, huge opportunity loss for Nebraska basketball as they they drop this game here against the Buckeyes. Yeah, wash, rinse, repeat seems to be the story of the season of missed opportunities. Um, you know, but this one uh, definitely stings uh, more than than any other. Uh, the fact that you know they were 1.9 seconds away from winning this game. Uh, and just couldn't do it. And you go back even further, like like Tim Miles said in the open. I mean, this the entire second half was just a complete meltdown. Uh, they played actually pretty darn well in the first half, uh, but for whatever reason, the offense just went completely blank. Um, you know, multiple um, multi-minute scoring droughts, defensive breakdowns, missed layups, missed free throws, um, just inability to get rebounds, second chance opportunities for Ohio State. It's basically, just a a perfect storm of everything that could go wrong went wrong for Nebraska in that second half. And um, I mean, if you're a team that is, you know, uh, what you would call going into the week playing in a must-win game. Uh, that's pretty inexcusable, and I think that's probably as big of a concern as anything, that uh, Nebraska was well aware of what was at stake in that game. And uh, to execute, or lack thereof, the way they did, uh, you know, just uh, you know, kind of says, just basically embodies everything that this season's been about, you know, close but no cigar. And you go back, though, Robin, and look, the Maryland win and the Indiana game, you know, they had kind of similar situations where the opponent had a shot to, to take a, you know, a game-tying or game-winning shot, and they, they held out there, so... You're not always going to win those last second, you know. But it shouldn't have been a last second. It shouldn't second. have been a, exactly. That's the issue. And that, that's what, and Ohio State was desperate. I mean, for them to be in NCAA tournament consideration, they pretty much, it was a must-win game. They're 12-7, and seven, but within the Big Ten, they, they aren't doing what they They're normally two do. 2-4 now. Yeah, and that was maybe 
the worst Ohio State team that's been in Lincoln since Nebraska's played in the Big Ten. Easily, and, and I think there was a good comparison that I heard before the game, is they're kind of like an NBA D-League team. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, they got a bunch of good players, but they have no team chemistry and have no uh, you know basketball IQ together, and so basically you got a bunch of good players just kind of playing individual basketball, and that's how you get to 2-4 and four in the conference. But to their credit, they've won two straight now. They beat Michigan State and then went on the road and beat Nebraska, so uh, maybe Thad Mata's got that thing back on track. Well, and this this also stood out to me uh, Wednesday night, Robin. Glenn Watson with the foul trouble only played 28 minutes. This is a guy that usually plays about, what, 37, 38 minutes. And in those 10 minutes, not having him on the floor, yeah. I mean, that's a huge offensive difference uh, when Glenn Watson, you know, who's like your lead horse in some of these games, is, is on the bench for about 10 more minutes than normal. Yeah, I mean, they just don't have the depth. To, to have Glenn Watson or Ty Webster sit for any significant amount of time. And um, I think that played a big role in the second half was, you know, basically it came down to Ty Webster having to try and do everything on his own. And we know how that goes. Uh, Nebraska's offense went into a shell, um, just couldn't do anything. And even the, the easy opportunities they had, they weren't able to capitalize. And so, I mean, it was just, like I said, uh, from uh, a full range of meltdowns, um, which is, is certainly frustrating, you know, for a lot of Nebraska fans that uh, we've seen this story play out so many different times that you know Nebraska has an opportunity to take that next step as a program um, and even make you know a, a big step towards a potential NCAA tournament berth and they let it slip through their fingers so it's it's def- like I said it's kind of been the story of the season and um, unfortunately Nebraska's in a pretty big hole now all the momentum they gained from that 3-0 start to league play is erased after losing three straight um, and so you, you look ahead they got a road game at Rutgers very which, winnable which is very winnable I mean Rutgers is the only winless team in uh, Big Ten play so far they're 0-6 um, but after that, it's pretty brutal. I mean, you got at Northwestern, who already came into Pinnacle Bank Arena and beat you. Then you've got home games against Purdue, which may be the best team in the Big Ten, and then Michigan State um, following up. So uh, if, if they don't they, – they, they have no more room for error. And I wrote this in you know my uh, piece after the game. Uh, they're, they're, all the missed opportunities, I mean, they have zero leash to make any more slip-ups if they want a legitimate chance at making a postseason or an NCAA tournament burn. Uh, finishing 500 in conference play I mean, is, let's talk, is an real, absolute must. I mean, NIT is more realistic. And I mean, that was I, kind of what we thought going in. I mean, but, I mean, after that 3-0 and start, you started to reevaluate what the goals for this season actually were. And, I mean, seriously, if, if they were able to actually, you know, lock down the games that they sh- probably should have won, I mean, we're talking about a legitimate at bubble team right now. But uh, with every t- missed opportunity they have, that slips further and further away. So, uh, like I said, I mean, to even have a chance at sniffing. Seven and five, eight yeah, and four I finish mean, here down the stretch yeah, probably. Yeah, and like I said, that's not going to be easy because uh, the schedule only gets harder from here. You know, and life without Ed Morrow continues, um, and it's kind of a been a by-committee approach. Isaiah Roby didn't have a lot of points, but he had eight rebounds and four blocks. Um, that was kind of some of that Ed Morrow production that you saw. Uh, how about Nick Fowler uh, getting eight kind of quality minutes last night? That was really unforeseen. And then Dry Horn kind of has to play a lot more. So it's just kind of been, you know, let's piecemeal minutes together with different guys and ask guys to do some of the things Ed used to do. Yeah. And uh, as, you know, 
brightest spots as those guys had, you know, at times during that game. It's near not nearly enough to replace what Ed Morrow brought. And his absence, uh, you you can't ignore it. It's been devastating to not have him in the low post. First of all, offensively, they have no guy they can dump the ball into uh, into the post and have him go make a play and, and get a bucket. I mean, Ed was the only guy capable. Yeah, you saw Shimanga miss a lot yeah, of point blank Michael shots. Michael Jacobson last night. too. I mean, they, they just don't look comfortable. They're awkward and they kind of bumble the ball around and uh, really have no confidence offensively. And so you basically eliminate any low post scoring threat. Uh, and then obviously the rebounding. That, that, that's as big as this because Ed was averaging you know almost eight nine rebounds a game, and now you eliminate that, and they just don't have the guys that are you know I guess able to to step up and do that on a consistent basis. And uh, you look at that second half. I mean Ohio State scored thirty five points in the second half. Thirty came in the paint. They had fifteen offensive rebounds. Twelve came in the second half. Uh, and so I mean just not having. Uh, your most physical, relentless, low-post player in in the fold uh, really just changes the entire dynamic of Nebraska's lineup. And uh, until he gets back, that's something that they're going to have to continue to find ways to make up for. And right now, with with nine scholarship guys, uh, I I don't know if they're really ready to have anybody step up and do that right now. Briefly, Robin here, what is realistic? Any guesses on Ed Morrow's return? Uh, I would say not anytime soon. I mean, the fact that they haven't even, they haven't even done a further um, MRI to evaluate you know where his foot is because basically they're waiting for it to stop hurting. Um, I'm not a doctor by any means, so I don't, guess I don't know exactly the reasoning behind that. I'm sure other people would probably have a better answer. But uh, until kind of that pain subsides, they're not going to do any further evaluation. And so we're not even at the point where they know the extent of the injury right now. So uh, it's uh, you know not not looking good. I would say probably you know at least another couple weeks at, at minimum, um, just because this is something they're going to be very, very careful with, uh, considering that this is a, a kind of a chronic situation that he's been dealing with. Well, Nebraska will play Rutgers on Saturday in New Jersey. It's an 11 a.m. game, an early uh, Saturday game out there um, as the 11, eight, 11 and 8 Scarlet Knights who are winless in conference play will take on Nebraska. Robin will have full coverage of that on Saturday. When we come back here on the show, we're going to take your questions next in the mailbag as there's been a lot to talk about and Matt Reynoldson, uh, our Husker Online intern, will lead us through that next. Here you're listening to the Husker Online Show. This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. And we're back here on the Husker Online Show. Sean Callahan, uh, now as we bring in Husker Online intern Matt Reynoldson, and uh, we're going to take your questions here in the mailbag as uh, lots to talk about here this week. Uh, Robin Washington, a class also back here on with us. Uh, Matt, what do you got out of the gates here? I know um, lots to talk about uh, with recruiting and the hires and the 3-4 defense. Uh, what's some of the best stuff we got this week? Yeah, a lot of 3-4 defense questions. Seems like that has been the hot topic over the week. So starting it off, did Mike Riley specifically want a 3-4 style defense or was Diago just the best available who happened to run a 3-4? There's no doubt in my mind that part of this move is the transition to the 3-4. I think the 3-4 intrigued Mike Riley. The problem was Mark Banker had never been a 3-4 coach, so they couldn't ever really run the 3-4. I know even Brian Stewart and I talked about this. Stewart was a 3-4 guy. But um, you know, because Banker was a 4-3, the, the principles and what they were was a 4-3. And we touched on this in segment two, but the players on this roster – 
do not really fit a true 4-3 going forward, especially, Nate, with the lack of defensive end recruiting they've had the last couple of years. Yeah, they've not been able to get a true pass rusher uh, at that defensive end position. And and it kind of goes back to what I was saying as far as Billy Devaney being an evaluator. I, I feel like he had a, an entire year to kind of take inventory on, on this team and, and probably had a little bit of input in saying, hey, I, the talent is best suited for, for a change in scheme here. As we move on here, Matt Reynolds, what's our next question in the mailbag? Well, there was a lot of buzz yesterday about some walk-ons getting scholarships for the spring and summer semesters. And so uh, what are some walk-on names to watch for in 2018? Well, I think the guys that were honored, I mean, Cole Conrad, you have to start there. He started five games at right tackle. Um, you pretty much have to put him on in the fall if you have an available one. I think Brian Reimers and Luke McNitt are the other guys that really – um, jump up there, but you know Tyler Hoppies could be the starting tight end. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot. I mean, it's a good group of the five. Austin Rose might have been the biggest surprise, but they had money to give out. You know, when you have five second semester scholarships to give out, um, you give them out. I mean, there's no benefit to sit on that money. It's money that is used, and this has been something that's gone on for years. Uh, but now with social media, a little bit more exposure with guys when they tweet about it. Um, I mean, typically though, guys hadn't really gotten a lot of exposure for getting second semester scholarships like we saw here this past week yeah and just follow up I, I, if i were to pick one name tyler hoppus is the guy uh, danny langsdorf loves him there's been multiple times that he's like gone out of his way to bring tyler up uh, when talking about the tight end position and with the amount of turnover they have at that position uh there's not a lot of competition for him so uh, he's got a lot of young guys behind him he's going to be kind of the one of the senior presences in that group so uh he like you said he has a very good chance to be the starter on and, day one and connor ketter also um got one as well and he's another walk-on tight end but there's really three walk-ons that could be spring starters right now cole conrad tyler hoppus and then um, Luke McNitt as a fullback. So I would think those guys are all possibly in line to get put on in August. Digging into the mailbag a little bit deeper, with the coaching carousel kind of swirling a little bit, rumors will always come up about grad assistants and other coaches. So if the 10th proposal comes to fruition, which I believe it did, right? It's it, it, it's it's the wheels are in motion. The wheels that are in it motion. will be passed immediately. Right. So does Tavita Thompson still have the inside track, or is that ship kind of moved on a little bit? I mean, I really think that remains to be seen. I was talking to another coach from another school yesterday, and a lot of people are going to have to do this based on what they can spend. You know, if you're a Group of Five school, you're basically going to bring in a guy and put him as the low man on the totem pole and pay him about sixty or seventy grand. Um, where big time places like in the Big Ten. Um, are they going to shoot higher? Are they going to go, uh, Nate, you know, and, and try to get a bigger name and, and pay a guy 300000 plus? I mean, that, that's really what we don't know. And based on how things have played out this offseason with money, I, I tend to believe they're going to shoot pretty high on this 10th hire. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, six months ago, if you had asked me who was going to be the 10th coach if this proposal went through, I would have said no doubt to Vita Thompson. But now with the way that they've opened the checkbook for Dante Williams, for uh, Bob Diaco, there's no question in my opinion that they're probably going to be looking to bring in a big-time guy and bring in uh, someone who has a ton of experience coaching, who has a ton of experience recruiting, and has, has a, a, a very big background recruiting actually uh, instead of you know bringing 
bringing in a, a first-time coach, uh, even though Davida Thompson has done a great job coaching the, the tight ends. And it still could be him. Yeah, but... it still could be him. And, and, and he has done a great job recruiting, too. So, I mean, he definitely has some things going for him, but I, I'm not counting Nebraska out of trying to make another splash higher here with this 10th uh, coach. And th- it's going to be a mess. There's going to be coaches going all over the country. Oh, yeah. I haven't even thought about that, but cite our buddies at coachingscoop.com and, and those guys. They're going to be really busy when this thing goes through. Uh, all right, we got time for a few more questions here. Sean Callahan, Nate Klaus, Robin Washett, as we take your questions with Matt Reynoldson in the mailbag. Sticking with kind of that recruiting theme you touched on in your last answer, Nebraska picked up a 2018 commitment from Rivals 250 athlete Eric Fuller Jr. yesterday out of Hawkins High School. At, he could play receiver, he could play defensive back. So how many receivers, after picking up it, their baseline, you said, is five this year or around there. So how many receivers does Nebraska take in the 2018 class? If they're able to t- get five in this 2017 class, I, I think you only take probably two in, in 2016. Or I'm sorry, 2018. Um, unless you know of some some guys that are going to be moving on. But I think right now the the bottom line is they want to they want to uh, they want to improve overall talent across the board. Uh, whether whether that's bringing in guys that could play both wide receiver or corner, uh, or just bringing in you know supremely talented wide receivers. And, and maybe maybe even uh, being willing to bring in uh, one or two more than what they actually need just because those guys are so dynamic. I think they're they're all about improving the roster at this point in time. But uh, for next year, it's going to be a pretty small wide receiver class because it's looking like the this 2017 class is going to be at least five. And people forget, you look at the distribution numbers right now, they have just one true freshman on scholarship, no redshirt freshmen, and essentially just two sophomores. Um, and Stanley Morgan and Keen Williams. Zach Darlington's on there too, but yeah, really four not. Four guys coming back. So it is, yeah, four guys that could play. Then you have a couple walk-ons like Brian Reimers and Gabe Braun that will factor in um, as role players. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think people realize how decimated the bottom of the shelf is right now. It is, it is really low numbers right now. All right, uh, we still have time for a few more questions. What do you got for us, Matt? A basketball question here. It's about perimeter defense, and why has that been such a struggle for Nebraska? I know we saw a little bit of an improvement as far as perimeter defense in the second half of that Ohio State game, but it's been an issue. Guys like Derek Walton and Peter Jock knocking down some shots, so how do they fix that? Well, uh, you know, that was one of the questions we asked earlier this week at uh, the the press conference before the Ohio State game was, you know, what what do you guys have to do to get better? Because... Uh, I mean, you're talking about two straight games, you know, prior to that Ohio State game where teams were basically setting season highs against you with made three-pointers. Um, but they've, they've been different uh, ways that the teams have gone about it. Obviously, you know, Michigan's, uh, they had seven three-pointers combined from their center and power forward. So it's not like it's just guards going crazy, but the amount of open looks teams were getting was definitely a concern. And um, Ty Webster said it has nothing to do with scheme, it has nothing to do with skill. It's about will and want to, to play good defense in the half court and not, uh, you know, have those mental breakdowns and being caught out of position to where you're leaving guys wide open. So that's going to be my answer. It, it comes down to these players wanting it a little bit more and putting more effort in uh, to play better defense and getting a hand in shooters' faces as opposed to just letting them shoot wide open threes all day. All right, time for one last question. Sean, this is a pretty popular question on the board. People are wondering if you can write them excuse notes to get off of work and school on signing day. I was wondering that as well i got a few classes on signing day so can you get us off i'll do my best i mean signing day 
is a holiday here in Nebraska, and I think it started in about 2005 when Bill Callahan had the number five ranked recruiting class in the country. Um, signing day has definitely taken on a new life of its own in the state. Where um, there's definitely Nate, there's going to be some announcements on signing day too, right? I mean, we're, we're looking, we're looking for a lot. So uh, we're going to get the servers ready this year. It's going to be a, a busy, jam-packed uh, day on Husker Online as uh, it's going to be fun this year with signing day and. Uh, we got a taste of things of Dante Williams getting uh, a random commit this past week. Um, and I think that's only the start of it for some of the guys like Dante and Keith, um, as Keith got Ty John Lindsay as well. So um, buckle up because um, it could be a fun, fun day uh, for Nebraska fans. Well, that wraps it up here uh, for the mailbag segment. When we come back, we are going to shift to recruiting as Nebraska has landed a couple of new West Coast commits. We'll get Nate Klaus's thoughts on that to close the show. You're listening to the Husker Online Show. This is HuskerOnline.com, your authority on Nebraska athletics. Final segment here of the Husker Online Show. Sean Callahan and Nate Klaus as we wrap things up with some Husker recruiting talk. And it's kind of Nate's uh, busy season, as we know, and the HUL crew has been working at it. We have tunnel talks every day uh, throughout this time of year as there's a lot to go through, a lot of news. And Nate, let's first start with the biggest development that's happened here in recruiting, uh, the commitment of Tyjon Lindsay over the weekend. He decommitted from Ohio State, had a big sort of falling out, whatever you want to call it. Um, Nebraska kept the relationship going, and it really played a factor in him making a swift, quick decision and uh, changing his commitment to the Huskers. Yeah, it was a huge pickup from Nebraska, and this is something that when Tyjon committed to Ohio State in August, Nebraska was a close second. He had a terrific relationship with Keith Williams at the time, and uh, enjoyed his his time in Nebraska when he visited uh, for the spring game, and then again for the the Big Red weekend or in the the Friday Night Lights camp, but. Nebraska didn't stop recruiting him. Keith Williams kept after him, and, and those two continued to to talk and build on their relationship. And I think it was a deal where, um, you know, the commitment to to Ohio State, you know, the luster, I guess, kind of wore off that commitment a little bit. And he began to realize, hey, you know, I'm I'm a smaller wide receiver. I have aspirations in playing in the NFL. Uh, so, but at my size, maybe that window is a little bit smaller than than some other guys. So I need to be playing in a system and for a coach uh, that is going to turn me from a dynamic athlete into a professional wide receiver and, and to play in a system where I'm, I'm highlighted as a wide receiver, not as kind of a gadget player in, in a spread offense. And, and I think those are two factors that played a huge role in this. Um, you know, there's some other rumors surrounding some other some other things out there, and, and, and Tajon has said that he's, rumors. We love him. Yeah, he's going to get into a lot of those things on signing day. But um, but the bottom line is here that Nebraska beat Ohio State for a top 100 player, one of the more dynamic players in the entire country. And Tajon Lindsay is the type of talent that's going to come in and make an impact from day I'm one. I'm sure Zach Smith though has some sort of excuse how it all played out, but we'll, we'll, that's a whole nother off air conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is our, our good buddy Zone Six um, and his tweeting uh, trolling that he loves to do throughout the year, but uh, you know this is a guy Nate. You look at him, and it's not out of the question. The guy that we saw in the satellite camp in Lincoln, or the camp in Lincoln, the camp in Calabasas, and then the Rivals Five Star Challenge. If that kid shows up to Lincoln in August, 
he could be starting for Nebraska um, as early as week one. There's no question about it. I mean, at the the five-star challenge in Atlanta, he won the wide receiver tight end MVP out of the top 100 players in the country. So he made everyone look silly. There wasn't a, a defensive back at that camp that could cover him, you know, the entire week. And and when you're when you're playing at that level against that type of competition, I think it's it kind of speaks to how special of an athlete you are. Um, and then we saw we saw much of the same at the Calabasas Satellite Camp in California. We saw we saw it on Friday Night Lights. Although uh, there were a couple times when when uh, you know I think that Friday Night Lights camp was maybe the first time when I saw anybody come remotely close to being able to cover Tyjon Lindsey, and that was uh, uh, Jalen Kelly Powell, who's going to Michigan. But um, time and time again, Tyjon Lindsey has, has proven that against some of the top players in the country, he's a cut above, and, and he's a competitor. And I think that's what I really like about him is the fact that not only is he a super good athlete, um, a dynamic player, but he's a competitor, is not afraid to, to go against the best uh, he's a hard worker uh, and I really do think that he's going to fit in very very well with Keith Williams and and in Danny Langstor from Mike Riley's offense and Nate this year it will really be the first time that these receivers are kind of the ones coming in are truly Keith's guys I think Stanley was obviously part of the previous staff De Mornay was part of the previous staff and they've kind of struck out in their first two recruiting classes I mean there's only one survivor left and that's JD Spielman yep. and, and as we've discussed that he was more of a Riley guy um, not necessarily one of Keith's prime targets in recruiting. So this group will be different because they really will be Keith's guys, led by Tyjon and Javon and Keyshawn and whoever else gets added to this group. Yeah, they're 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 truly Keith's guys, and and at the the other important angle here too is that they're going to be catching footballs from a true passing quarterback too. Um, so not only are they going to be all Keith's guys, but I think that um, you know they they might be in a better position to succeed based off of who they potentially could be having you know be catching footballs from. So um, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch this position group kind of grow and progress here, uh, even though they're going to be super young. I think they're going to be uh, supremely talented. All right. Uh, Huskers get a commit, Nate. Uh, Eric Fuller, um, I believe he's an Eric Fuller Jr., right? He yep. goes by junior. Um, gives Nebraska three commits for 2018. This was about as big of a, this is why I make $400,000, I'm Dante Williams commit <laughs> as it gets. Yeah, there's no question about it. Eric Fuller Jr. out of Hawkins High School in Los Angeles. You know, teammates with Joseph Lewis and Greg Johnson and all those guys. Um, you know, commits out of the blue. He's a Rivals 250 guy, one of the more dynamic uh, playmakers in the 2018 class out in California. Um, he's a small guy, you know, 5'9", 5'10", 160 pounds or so, but he's probably one of the fastest kids in California, uh, one of the more dynamic players in the country. And I think he's, he kind of is, is out of the same mold as a – as a Tyjon Lindsay or a, a Jameer Calvin type of playmaker, he could um, he plays both offense and defense out there. But this was definitely uh, Dante Williams and Keith Williams coming together and being able to to secure this commitment without ever having this kid step foot on campus one time. Um, you know they were able to beat out offers from USC, UCLA, Oregon, and this thing's Michigan. not over. I mean, this no. kid this kid has got a lot of time. And, you know, recruiting rules are going to change a lot here, too, where visits are going to be easier for kids to take, et cetera. So 
Um, it's a great start, but we, I mean, we've been through this, Nate, we've seen this rodeo a few times and, and things can definitely happen now from then. Well, yeah, it's a long time until signing day, uh, for that 2018 class, a little, a little over a year. So there's going to be a lot of things that happen between now and then, but at the same time, you know, I, I think that this is just kind of the Dante and Keith Williams kind of scratching the surface of what they can do. And this 2018 class is, could be pretty special based off of the recruiting efforts of those two guys. And um, and I will definitely not, uh, you know, count these guys out of being able to hold on to a kid like Eric Fuller Jr. I, I think it's it's possible. Uh, it's it's not going to be easy, uh, but it's definitely possible that, that these two coaches could hold on to Eric Fuller Jr. Now, Nate, Bob Diaco goes on the road here um – any early thoughts on kind of maybe who his prime targets are going to be? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's the defensive line is probably you know, a, a top uh, priority. I, I think uh, a player like Damian Daniels, uh, who I think would be a terrific nose tackle in this in this 3-4 um, down in Dallas would be important. Uh, Deontay Watts, who's already committed, but who's talking about taking a couple other visits, who's another nose tackle prospect, uh, would be very important, I think, for, for him to go see. Um, but really, you, you, can't, you can't go wrong with, with seeing any of the current commits or any of the the remaining targets on, on the defensive side of the ball, but I definitely do think it's he more than likely is going to be seeing somebody in that front seven, more than likely a defensive tackle or nose tackle. As we wrap it up here, Nate, this will be another visit weekend. There's just this weekend and then next weekend, and these are the final two visitor weekends. What can we expect here this weekend in Lincoln? Well, you're going to have at least five or six guys on campus. Some some big some big name guys. Elijah Blades is a four star cornerback out of California. Uh, Diamondor Lenore, who's a, a top 100 overall athlete in the country, uh, one of the top cornerback prospects in the country. Both those guys are going to be on campus. I think Dante Williams has a good shot um, at flipping Elijah Blades from his Florida commitment. Uh, Diamondor is open right now, but I think at this present moment, he's probably leaning a little bit more towards Oregon. So we'll we'll see what happens, what, what shakes out um, with these guys here um, this weekend. You're going to have a couple commits and DeAndre Thomas, and Brandon Hymas uh, that are going to be on campus uh, as well. So, uh, you know, I, I do think that we're going to see potentially some fireworks uh, come this weekend because it's getting to crunch time, um, and guys guys are needing to make decisions. And, and I think there could be some decisions that are made. I don't know if they'll be public uh, this weekend or not. Uh, but another four-star to keep in mind is Brian Thompson, who's a four-star wide receiver out of California that's going to be on campus. A big-bodied guy, 6'3", 100, 185-pound uh, wide receiver out of California that's going to be on campus. So um, so it, it'll be it's kind of one of those nice visit weekends where you've got a, a good core group of guys that are going to be on, on campus. And um, like I said, guys that are, that are nearing crunch time, they're going to be needing to make decisions sooner than later well and two big ones were DeAndre Thomas and Brandon Hymas um you know Thomas with the courting of Notre Dame on him and then Hymas you know there's this that fear of the Texas offer well they did offer and he turned him down and so there you go that's the kind of guy you want in a recruiting class and uh Brandon Hymas has not wavered one bit um as he wants to play in a pro style power offense kind of like what Nebraska has right now yeah and, and kudos to to Mike Kavanaugh I mean when Kavanaugh offered Brandon Hymas Last year, last spring, uh, he only had 
a, a handful of offers at best, and they weren't. I mean, I think at that time maybe Texas Tech was his best offer, and and this kid, um, you know, came up for the spring game, and they were able to secure an early commitment from him, and he all he did, has done is gone out and and proven that he's one of the top uh, offensive tackle recruits here in this region, uh, especially in the state of Texas, and uh, won a state championship for Lake Travis, which is a powerhouse program, and uh, and is stuck with his his commitment. You know, um, you know, Texas hires a new football coach. There's a lot of buzz right there in town. He lives in Austin. Jump on board, <laughs> yeah. And and he turns down the the home the home uh, hometown team. So I uh, got to give him a lot of credit. And I think you have to give DeAndre Thomas a lot of credit, even though he's kind of listened to a little bit to what Notre Dame has said, and could still possibly take a visit there. I I, I don't see him going anywhere other than Nebraska right now. And we forgot to mention Chris Walker also committed here. Um, and that, that gives Nebraska now four offensive linemen. They're basically done on the O-line here as we wrap it up, Nate. Yeah, Chris Walker is a, a terrific in-state prospect. Um, couldn't ask for a, a better-looking athlete at that offensive tackle position at 6'6", 270 pounds, not a bad, an ounce of bad uh, weight on the kid, um, and, and nothing, but, uh, nothing but a bright future ahead of him. Well, 17 commits for Nebraska, about five or six more to go here, and it looks like it's all coming into place. Make sure you stick on Husker Online com as Nate Klaus, Mike Mattia, Brian Munson, and the entire Husker Online recruiting team will have coverage here of all the developments that come out of the weekend. Thanks again for joining us this week on Husker Online, your authority on Nebraska athletics.